a very nice man, a retired schoolmaster, who'd come to live in Miss Parr's old house. I'm beginning to feel very, very sorry for this unfortunate man, and have half a mind to ring him up anonymously, advising his early removal from Fairacre if he wishes to have an undisturbed retirement. The last day of the holidays has arrived, and, as usual, half the jobs I intended doing have been left undone. No marmalade made, no paint washed down, only the most urgent mending done, and school starts tomorrow. It all looks unbelievably clean over there. I staggered back with the fish tank and Roman hyacinths, all of which have sheltered under my schoolhouse roof for the past fortnight. Miss Gray, Mrs. Annette, I mean, will have a smaller class this term, only sixteen on roll, while mine will be twenty-three strong. The stoves are miracles of jetty brilliance. Mrs. Pringle must have used pounds of black lead and enough energy to move a mountain to have produced such lustre. Woe betide any careless chipper-on of coke for the next few days. Term has begun. Everyone is back, with the exception of Eileen Burton, who has, according to the note brought by a neighbouring child, a sore throat and an tight chest can only hope these afflictions are not infectious. The workmen have found it necessary to remove the whole frame of the skylight, so that, having had a clear two weeks to do the job undisturbed, they now tell me that we must endure a flapping and smelly tarpaulin over the hole in the roof while a new window frame is made in Caxley. The children appeared to have forgotten the very elements of education. Five times table eluded them altogether, and my request to write January on their own met with tearful mystification. The vicar called just before we went home in his habitual winter garb of cloak, beretta and leopard-skin gloves. Surely they can't stand another winter. I only wish I had such a serene outlook as Mr Partridge's. He greeted us all as though he loved every hair of our heads, as truly I believe he does. I see that he has Jesu lover of my soul on the hymn list this week, but haven't the heart to tell him that I think it painfully lugubrious and quite unsuitable for the children to learn. I invited him over to the schoolhouse to tea and ushered him into the dining room, where the clothes horse stood round the fire, bearing various intimate articles of apparel and a row of dingy polishing rags, which added the final touch of squalor. Not that he, dear man, would have worried, even had he noticed the things, but that clothes horse was whisked neatly into the kitchen in record time. I have just returned from a day out with Amy. She rang me up last night to say that there was a wonderful film on which I must see. It would broaden me. It was about real life. I said that I'd looked through the Caxley Chronicle this week, but I thought that both cinemas were showing westerns. Caxley! screamed Amy down the wire. Did I think of nothing but Caxley and Fairacre? When she thought of what promise I had shown as a girl, it quite upset her to see how I'd gone off. No, the film she had in mind was to be shown in a London suburb. The cinema specialised in revivals, and this was a quite wonderful chance to see this unique masterpiece. She would pick me up at 10.30, give me lunch, and bring me back to the wilds again. I mentally pulled my forelock and said that that would be lovely. Amy's car is magnificent and has a fluid flywheel, which, as a gear-crashing learner, filled me with horrid envy. We soared up the hills, passing everything in sight, while Amy told me that life, even for a happily married woman, was not always rosy. 
James, though utterly devoted, of course, was at a dangerous age. Not that he was inattentive. Only last week he gave her these gloves. She raised a gargantuan fur-clad paw. And the week before that, these earrings. I bent forward to admire a cluster of turquoises. And this brooch was his Christmas present and was fantastically expensive. But she found she was beginning to suspect the reason for so many costly presents, especially when he had been away from home on business so frequently lately. I said, Why don't you ask him if there's anyone else? Amy said that was so like me. It wasn't surprising that I stayed single when I was so, well, so unwomanly and unsubtle. No, she could handle this thing quite skilfully, she thought. And in any case, it was her duty to stick by dear James through thick and thin. Unworthy thoughts crossed my mind as to whether she'd stick so nobly if James suddenly became penniless. We arrived in the West End. Amy had no difficulty in finding a car park with an obsequious attendant who directed our footsteps to the hotel where Amy had booked a table. I was much impressed by the opulence of this establishment and said so. Amy shrugged nonchalantly. Not a bad little dump. Then, scanning the menu, James brings me here when he wants to be quick. The food is just eatable. We ordered ham and tongue with salad, which Amy insisted on having mixed at our table, supervising the rubbing of the bowl with garlic, which I detest but could see I must endure, the exact number of drops of oil, etc., and expressing horror that the whole was not being turned with wooden implements. I would much rather have had my salad fresh and been allowed to ask for Heinz mayonnaise, in constant use at home, but realised that Amy was enjoying every minute of this worldly woman taking out country mouse act and would not have spoiled it for her for worlds. Over lunch, Amy continued to tell me about James's generosity and disclosed the monthly allowance which he gives her. This, she said, she just manages on. As the sum exceeds easily my own modest monthly cheque as a headmistress, I felt inclined to remind her of our early days together, teaching in a large junior school not many miles from this very hotel, when we thrived cheerfully on a salary of just over £13 a month, and visited the theatre, the cinema, went skating and dancing, dressed attractively, and, best of all, were as merry as grigs all the time. As Amy's guest, however, I was bound to keep these memories to myself. As I watched her picking over her salad discontentedly, I remembered vividly a meal we had had together in those far-off days. It must have been towards the end of the month, for I know we spent a long and hilarious time working out from the menu which would fill us up more for eightpence, baked beans and two sausages, or spaghetti on toast. The cinema was rather hard to find in an obscure cul-de-sac, and the film, which Amy had particularly come to see, had just begun. It was so old that it seemed to be raining all the time, and even the bedroom scenes, which were far too frequent for my peace of mind, were seen through a downpour. The women's hairstyles were unbelievable and quite succeeded in distracting my grasshopper mind from the plot, either puffed out at the sides like the chorus in the Mikado or cut in a thick fringe just over the eyebrows, giving the most brutish aspect to the ladies of the cast. Waistlines were low and busts incredibly high, evidently, when this film first saw the light. The supporting film was of later vintage, but, if anything, heavier going. 
played by Irish actors in Irish countryside in Irish weather and spoken in such a clotted hodgepodge of Irish idiom as to be barely intelligible, it dealt with the flight of a young man from the cruel English. Bogs, mist, mountains, girls with shawls over their heads and bare feet splashing through puddles, open coffins surrounded with candles and keening, wrinkled old women, all flickered before us for an hour and a half, and then the poor dear was shot in the end. We emerged into the grey London twilight with our eyes swollen. Drawn together by our emotional afternoon, we had tea in a much more relaxed mood than lunch and drove back in a pleasantly nostalgic atmosphere of ancient memories shared. It was good of Amy to take me out. A day away from Fairacre in the middle of January is a real tonic. But I was sorry to see her so unhappy. I hope that I'm not so wrong-headed as to blame Amy's recent affluence for her present malaise. As anyone of sense knows, money is a blessing, and I dearly wish I had more, a lot more. I should have flowers in the classroom and my house all the year round, buy a hundred or so books which have been on my list for years, and spend every school holiday travelling abroad, just for a start. I think the truth of the matter is that Amy feels useless and has too little to do. She used to be a first-class teacher and was able to draw wonderful pictures on the blackboard that were the envy of us all, I remember. School has now started with a vengeance, and I have heard all Mrs. Annett's infants' class read, that is, those that can. She's done wonders since she came a year ago. The marriage seems ideal, and Mr. Annett has lost his nervous, drawn look and put on quite a stone in weight. He brings her over from their schoolhouse at Beach Green each morning and then returns to his duties there as headmaster. I was glad that the managers persuaded her to continue teaching. She intended to resign last September, but we had no applicants for the post, and as the Annettes had had a good...